My wife, Amy, and I met when we were students at a Christian liberal arts school, a sister school to Indiana Wesleyan University uh, in western New York. Uh, I graduated two years before she did, not because I'm smarter, but because I'm four years older. And uh, in order to be close to her, I got a job near college so I can stick around a little longer. I was one of those. And uh, after her, uh, her junior year, we got engaged to be married. And like every engaged couple at Houghton at that time, uh, we read the book The Five Love Languages by Gary Chapman. You've heard of it. Uh, Chapman argues that there are uh, five primary ways that we most want to be loved. Uh, some of us want to be loved with words of affirmation. Some of us want to be loved with gifts. Some of us want to be loved with quality time. Uh, some of us want to be loved with uh, acts of service. Some of us want to be loved with physical touch. And Chapman says that the reason why relationships break down is because we tend to love our spouse not the way our spouse wants to be loved, not with our spouse's primary love language, but we love our spouse the way we want to be loved. And Chapman says that's a problem. So, so the key to a successful relationship, according to Chapman, is figure out what your spouse's primary love language is and then love him or her that way. So Amy and I, about two months before we got married, we, you know, we read the book, we figured out that for her, her primary love language is uh, quality time and my primary love language is acts of service with physical touch being a close second, especially as we were heading into the honeymoon. <laughs> and, uh, and so I remember, you know, once we figured that out, we thought we, we had it all together, and, and well-meaning people would say to us, uh, you know, the first year of marriage is going to be tough. It's awkward. It's an adjustment. You're going to fight a lot. And I remember thinking to myself, I've got this. We've read the five love languages. We're on it. Other couples may struggle in their first year of marriage, not us. Well, we got married, and uh, the plan to love her the way she most wanted to be loved and her plan to love me the way I most wanted to be loved, that all worked perfectly, flawlessly for a month. And then we figured out that while we may have one primary love language, we actually want to be loved in all five love languages. Like, I don't only want acts of service. I discovered I actually also want words of affirmation. I want her to tell me how great I am. I want, I want gifts from her. I want her to put little Snickers bars under my pillow. Uh, I want quality time. I want to look each other in the eyes uh, without interruption. And of course, I want physical touch. I went, I, we're love gluttons. We want all five, we discovered. You can't live on one food group. You need all five. And the same is true with love. We want to be loved in all the ways we need to be loved. We are made in the image of God, according to Genesis 1, which means that God has love languages too. He's got several. It took me and Amy a while to figure out what our primary love language is, and then it took us even longer to figure out that we're love gluttons. We want to be loved with all five love languages. But apparently God is more self-aware than we are. God knows how God wants to be loved. 
And in fact, the most frequently repeated sentence in Scripture is the articulation of how God wants to be loved, his love languages. The first time it's mentioned is in Deuteronomy, right in the beginning of the Bible. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 to 5, it's called the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord with all of your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. And God keeps telling us that throughout Scripture, from Deuteronomy on through the New Testament, even on the lips of Jesus, Mark chapter 12, for example, verse 28 and following. One of the teachers of the law came and heard them debating. Noticing that Jesus had given them a good answer, he asked him, of all the commandments, which is the most important? The most important one, answered Jesus, is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. It seems like Jesus has added a love language to God because in the Shema, the original Shema in Deuteronomy, it's love the Lord with your heart, with your soul, with your strength. There's just three. But here Jesus adds love the Lord with your mind. The Greek word is dianoia. It's the understanding, the intellect. It's the capacity to uh, think things through for moral reasoning and decision-making. And the reason why it seems like Jesus is adding one, because in Old Testament Jewish thought, uh, the heart and the mind were inseparable. I mean, to love God with the heart was to love him with the mind in Old Testament thought. There wasn't this separation, this dichotomy between the head and the heart. The two were really one and the same. But in Jesus' day, in the Hellenistic, Greco-Roman world, they were separated, so Jesus had to be explicit, the mind. It's hard for us to imagine the head and the heart being in sync because we say things like, my head's telling me to do this, but my heart's telling me to do that. We pit the two against each other. And it seems to me that the love language of God that the church over the centuries has neglected most is loving God with the mind. I remember uh, at every stage of my educational journey, going to college, uh, going to get my master's, going for my doctorate, there were always well-intentioned people around me who loved me, who said things like this. Don't let study soil your soul. Don't let academics rob you of your passion for God. Have you heard some of those things? I mean, here I was going to like Christian institutions to be a pastor. I wasn't going to a brothel. I wasn't going to a Vegas casino or a crack house. My major was pastoral ministry, not drug dealing with a minor in gambling. I remember early on uh, as a pastor, I was a college pastor. It's after I graduated, got my bachelor's degree, and I stayed in that town to pastor, and I was the college pastor. And I remember a group of students at this college uh, would travel two, three hours on the weekends to go to Toronto Airport Fellowship. Uh, 
a church that supposedly had a great movement of God going on. And these students would go and uh, they were told literally, like when they went to that church, check your mind at the door. And during the service, if, if God showed up, the Spirit showed up, uh, some of the evidence would be like people would be slain with laughter. They would start giggling uncontrollably and not stop. Or they would make animal sounds if the spirit came. They would start barking like dogs or roaring like lions or meowing like cats. I'm not making this up. They were also told that if you, if you have faith, gold dust will begin to appear in your fillings, in your teeth. And so these students would come back to the town and they would go to the dentist and ask the dentist if he could see any gold dust up in their teeth. And he was a friend of mine. He told me about this and he would say, no, there's no gold in your teeth. And they would say, well, you just don't have enough faith to see it. It seems to me that the church's worst moments have not come as a result of our failure to love God with our heart, but from our failure to love God with our mind. And God wants to be loved with the mind. I mean, it's all over Scripture. I don't know how I missed it or resisted it for as long as I did. And sometimes I'll yell at my wife, honey, I can't find my keys, and she'll yell back from the living room, they're right on the kitchen table, right under your nose. God's desire to be loved with the human mind is right on the kitchen table under my nose, and I missed it for a long time. And the mind, I discovered, is a terrible thing to waste. In 1972, the United Negro College Fund came up with that motto, that slogan, the mind is a terrible thing to waste. That term, that phrase was coined by Forrest Long. And many believe that the success of the United Negro College Fund was based on that great slogan. Over the years, the United Negro College Fund has raised $3.6 billion, has sent more than 400,000 uh, students through college. Incidentally, that slogan came out in 1972, the year I was born. I am old. And so I heard it for decades. The mind is a terrible thing to waste. The mind is a terrible thing to waste. The mind is a terrible thing to waste. But like the keys on the kitchen table, I just missed it. I wasted my mind. In fact, I dropped out of high school early in my junior year. But I got my GED and I went to college. But when I went to college at a Christian liberal arts school, much like this one, I was determined not to let my head get in the way of my heart. And I remember sitting in chapel services, and uh, if there was a cerebral sort of chapel, you know, a heady one, I would check out. I remember during song time, worship through song, I would, I would raise my hands with exuberance because I had a lot of passion. I got the loving God with my heart part. But while I was worshiping, I would look around at people around me to see how they were worshiping. And I would see people just sitting still, you know, standing still, not raising their hands, not even singing. And I would judge them. 
And what I didn't realize was that while I was emotionally caught up in the guitar lyrics and drum, uh, guitar licks and drum beats, they were thinking deeply, theologically, about how the lyrics of the song aligned with incarnational and Trinitarian theology. My pejorative view of the mind allowed me to do things like cut Greek class for two weeks straight or hand in a research paper that only cited one source without feeling any conviction at all. The mind is a terrible thing to waste. And I blame my pejorative view of the mind a bit on the church, I got to say. I'm not taking all the blame for this. I blame it on the Apostle Paul, who in 1 Corinthians 8.1 wrote these words, knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. What I didn't realize until I studied the passage is that Paul was not condemning the use of the mind in love for God. He was condemning uh, heretics called Gnostics. Gnostics uh, believed that they had this special gnosis, knowledge, that made them super spiritual. So they could love God with their mind, but it didn't matter what they did with the rest of their self, their body, for example. So they could sleep with their stepmom or worship at pagan uh, temples by having sex with prostitutes because they had the mind going. It didn't matter what else they did. And Paul gets on them. Knowledge puffs up. Love builds up. The New Testament views the mind a lot like it views money. Both can be very destructive when they're idolized. But both can be very constructive when they're used for the glory of God and the well-being of humanity. I got the, the destructive part. I didn't get the constructive part. And the mind is a terrible thing to waste. I can tell you about dozens of sermons I've heard telling me how to love God with my heart or how to love God with my hands in service. I can tell you the dozens of times people told me, don't let your head get in the way of your heart. But no one has ever said, watch out for thoughtless passion. I can't remember a sermon I heard about how to love God with my mind. I just didn't get it. An example of the pejorative use of the mind uh, can be captured in something a, a speaker in a chapel service, once said in the middle of his message, he just stopped in the middle of his message at a, in a chapel service like this, and he said these words. When a school and a Christian institution based on Christian faith begins to slip away from its values by holding academic classes during times when we need to pause and hear from the Lord, to me, that's a problem, he said. I get what he's saying, but I think his view is a bit myopic. I think he misses the boat on scripture. He's assuming that the only place and the best place to worship is in the chapel and great stuff happens here. I'm all for it. But worship can happen in the classroom too with the mind, the head, as well as the heart. A student responded to that chapel speaker in the school newspaper. She wrote these words. 
Worship can encompass many different things, including academic excellence. Students are almost always more insightful than chapel speakers, don't you think? Diversions are all around us. We look for diversions. I do. When I start to feel some brain pain from thinking, it hurts my head. Now, when I was a student, it was harder to find diversions than it is for you even. So I had to find a euchre card game. Uh, I, I had to wait for the next intramural sport to come up so I can divert from thinking or shoot bottle rockets out my dorm window at runners on the track. I did that. Anything to keep me from thinking. Because long listening, uh, deep reflection, critical thinking, insightful articulation, man, it hurts the head. But if we habitually avoid mind appropriation, it will create behavioral patterns in the brain that are prohibitive. What I'm saying is that mental disengagement, when the brain starts to hurt, can actually become addictive. And we lose our minds. Ozzy Osbourne, that famed British rocker, known as much for his self-destructive partying as he was for his heavy metal music, once said, of all the things I've lost, it's my mind I miss the most. The church, at times, has missed her mind. And God misses the church's mind, too. So the question is, how do we get our minds back so that we can love God with it. Academic Dean Paul answers the question in his letter to his Philippian students. I would say the four little chapters of Philippians are a great manual for, for the mind. All throughout that letter, Paul tells us how to use the mind to love God. But chapter two is sort of the pinnacle. He says, let this mind be in you which was also in Christ. Here's the implication I don't want us to miss. If the mind of Christ was sanctified, and it was, and if we are called to have the mind of Christ, and we are, then our minds can be sanctified too. Why do we think that the one part of us that cannot be sanctified is the mind? Well, how do we embody the sanctified mind of Christ? Paul tells us. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility of mind, consider others better than yourself. Take every thought captive. Don't seek self-promotion, but God's glory. Overcome thoughts of lust and envy and greed and pride by thinking about whatever is true, whatever is good, whatever is noble, whatever is excellent or praiseworthy. Think about these things. It sounds like the curricular design of a Christian liberal arts degree, doesn't it? Well, by the time I hit my senior year at college, my head and heart got together, <laughs> integrated. I tried my best not to let God get my mind, but he got it against my will. 
It happened in an English Renaissance class of all places. It was an upper-level elective I had to take, and I only took it because it fit my schedule. And I remember going to that class thinking, I'm going to be a pastor. How is the study of English Renaissance poets like Shakespeare and Johnson and Dunn and Herbert, how's that going to help me? One of the assignments Dr. Wardwell gave was to write a Shakespearean sonnet, so I figured I'd make the most of it. I wrote it for my girlfriend, Amy, who eventually became my wife, I think because of the sonnet. (laughs) What happened in that class, though, was that uh, I developed a love for putting words together concisely and creatively and thoughtfully. That words really do have a power to impact people. And I became a preacher, and now I teach preaching. And then I took this stupid philosophy class I had to take, where I was forced to wrestle theologically and biblically about the problem of pain in the world. I hated it. But no class helped me more than that one to help people I pastored navigate the complexities of pain in their lives. Even the math class I took was helpful. It gave me the capacity to problem solve. The head and the heart went together. Let us unite, Charles Wesley wrote, let us unite the two so long divided. Knowledge piety, head and heart. My kids are are 13, 12, and 10, boy, girl, boy. And they'll often come to me about something they're studying. They're questioning the viability of something they're studying. And they're like, Dad, why do we have to learn math? We have a calculator. We don't even have to think if we don't want to. And I say this, more important than getting the right answer is learning how to think. And they look at me like I have three heads, like you are. They'll often say, I'm not as smart as so-and-so. I don't, I don't have a good brain. And maybe you feel that way. Like your brain is not as good as anybody else's. God gave you an inferior brain. But if you use your mind to think as hard as you can because you love as much as you can. If you use your mind to partner with God in redeeming and restoring the world that he created and loves, then you've got a good mind, a really, really good mind. So love the Lord your God with your mind by solving that calculus problem. Love the Lord your God with your mind by writing a well-researched but thoughtfully original paper. Love the Lord with your mind by offering wise counsel to your friend who comes to you in need. Love God with your mind by resisting the urge towards self-absorption so you have the space in your head to think of creative ways to ameliorate the pain of others. Love God with your mind. Whether you are on the golf course, on the basketball court, 
whether you were in the dorm room, in the shower, on the toilet, whether you are having a good day or a terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day, love the Lord your God with your mind. Because the mind is a terrible thing to waste. June 2013, the United Negro College Fund revised their slogan. It goes like this now. The mind is a terrible thing to waste, but a great thing to invest in. Welcome to Christian liberal arts education, through which God invests in your mind so that you can invest it in love for him and in love for others. Stand with me. I'm going to give you some words from academic Dean Paul to his Philippian students. It's in chapter one of Philippians. Read Philippians. It's a manual for the mind. Here it is. And now may your love abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless until the coming of Christ filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and the praise of God. Get out of here and love God with your mind.